when I think about Romans and this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, um, you know, Blake does a, a really good job of bringing the text to life through song. And I think, I just think about the overarching idea of Romans is just being dressed in the righteousness of God alone. And being able to stand before God guilt-free and blameless because of the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I hope that that's what motivates you um, to be here on Sunday morning. The work of Jesus. Hope that's what motivates you to do Christian service. To lead in love. The work of Jesus. Because ultimately what you need to know is if there are any other motivating factors in your life, you will not make it. You will not make it to the end. You will not be able to, you will not be able to keep going. You will not have the strength or the endurance to persevere. But when you trust in the dressing, in the clothing of Jesus Christ, what is that clothing? It's His precious blood. When you trust in that cleansing, that powerful blood, you will have the power, you will have the ability to persevere through the end. We're going to be in Romans again. Romans chapter 1, verses 8-16. through 16. We're talking for the third week about the power of the Gospel, serving in the Spirit of the Gospel. And if this is your first week to be here, and this, this is a three-part sermon, I would like to encourage you in a few things. Number one, you need to know that some of this might not feel like it flows as a standalone sermon. But I'm here as a pastor not to preach um, little bitty standalone sermons. You know, I've said this a bunch of times, but I'll say it a few more million by the time, you know, we all die. Um, I'm here to preach sermons that add a piece to a whole. So this sermon today is just a piece of a building block that's building up believers to follow Jesus, to love Him, to live for Him. And so although it may not, it, it may seem like I'm starting from like a weird point or whatever for you if you haven't been here um, you can catch up by listening to the other two or not. Either way, um, that's the explanation for that. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at serving in the spirit of the gospel. And through that time, we've looked at how Paul was a servant in the spirit of the gospel. And how he encouraged those around him and those with him to serve in the spirit of the gospel. And from our text, we laid out five, we've laid out five characteristics to this point and we'll finish with three more today. We talked about the first week, a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of genuine faith, a spirit of determination, and how all of these are characteristics of someone who is serving in the spirit of the gospel, thankfulness, genuine faith, a determination, a fight. Then last week we talked about a spirit of prayer and a spirit of action. You may have thought over the last few weeks, now how did Bryce get three sermons on serving in the spirit of the gospel out of this one text. Um, maybe some preacher magic that I did or something like that. But um, I, I, assure you, I assure you all of the points that I've made over the last few weeks are in the text. So if, you, if you've missed that, um, read it again or get a good commentary to help you out. Uh, if, I, if this wasn't a good enough one for you. But so over the last few weeks we have seen all of these characteristics in one way or the other in serving uh, in the spirit of the gospel. And the main thrust of Paul's, of this portion of the text of, 
the letter to the churches at Rome is this attitude of serving God's people in the spirit or in the, in the nature of which the gospel was presented to Paul and subsequently the gospel has been presented to, to the world. Paul's heart was to serve the church at Rome, to be an encouragement to them, and then they even to be an encouragement to him. I think more than ever, I know I say that a lot, I really believe it because we live in this time, so my experience is this time other than what's written in history. So if I say more than ever, it's because I live in this age, so you have to understand that. More than ever, we need to learn and, and understand and be a people who know what it's like to serve. And I don't mean self-serve. Because what we struggle with in our generation, in our time, more than anything, is self-service. We live in such a self-centered age that we often missed that the main thrust of the gospel is putting others first in gospel service. With my children, when we pray together, and I try to make that an everyday occurrence, when we pray together, one of the things, two of the things that I pray, and it's one thing that goes together, I pray that we would put God first, that we would love the Lord our God above everything else, and that we would love our neighbor like we love ourselves. We can fulfill the two greatest commandments in the Bible by serving God first and then serving others next. So Paul lays out what it's like to serve God by serving the church of God. And we see it here. He says, we've seen it over the last few weeks and we see it in our text today. He says, I'm thankful for you. So one way we serve is through a spirit of gratitude, thankfulness. He says, my faith is like yours. Your faith is like mine and it's genuine. I'm thankful for that. He says, I want to encourage you to fight. Be determined. I pray for you. Paul is showing that he, is, he lacks this self-centeredness. He's aware that the gospel is about more than just him. He's praying for <coughs> the people of the church. He says, I long to be with you, not just because he wants to hang out with them or he likes their company, but he says, I long to be with you because I want to encourage you in the gospel. And I, I think you have encouragement for me in the gospel. I long to be with you. Not just so we can watch a football game together or not just so we can talk about what's going on in our lives, but so that we can encourage each other in the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It was necessary. And I'm not going to spend, I am going to spend a little bit of time on that today, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time. But it was necessary to say that at this point in, in Paul's life. And it's necessary to say that at this point in our life, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed that it's, that it's going to be brought forth with us, that it's encouraging to me, that it's different than culture and society, but it's still something that we trust, believe in, and follow. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not ashamed because he understood that his only source of power, which First Romans 1.16 says, his only source of power was the gospel, was what the, what the Lord had done through the gospel of Jesus Christ to change his life, to work in him. Friends, if you understand that the gospel is all you have, there's no shame in your game. There's no room for shame. If you understand that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, there's no shame in following the gospel, in 
benefiting from the gospel, in encouraging others in the gospel. I want to take some time today, and hopefully uh, it'll be quick. You know, this, might, this is probably going to be one of the shorter sermons. Um, you know, you never know how it goes. I just let the Spirit lead. Uh, this is probably going to be one of the shorter sermons of the three, but I want to finish up our characteristics of serving in the Spirit of the Gospel. And the first one we're going to talk about today, which is your sixth characteristic. We're going to do six, seven, and eight today. A spirit of love. A spirit of love. And it's a shame on some level, that we even have to talk about this in the church because the church should be the prevailing leader in love. But I'm going to tell you, friends, a lot of the problems that we have in our local body and a lot of problems that we have in other local bodies of believers is that we don't lead in love. We don't lead in love. One of the most prevalent themes from Paul and from the Gospels, and from other letters in general, is this characteristic that the church of God, that the people of God, who have experienced the greatest love in all the world, should lead in that love to each other. Should lead in that love for the saints. A spirit of love is a major characteristic in serving in the spirit of the Gospel. Now, how do we know that this spirit of love is prevalent with Paul? Look at his words. He said, I thank God through Jesus for you. He is not like, like we do often when we write letters. He like, we like say something nice at the beginning to like let them down with how negative we want to be in the end. You know, you, you know, you sure do look good today. I want to talk to you about something you did last week. You know, it's, he's not letting them down easy. He's not letting, Paul is expressing genuine love and care for the people of God. Friends, this is a love that motivated Paul to serve, to love, to lead in the faith. He says, I thank my God for you. I thank my God through Jesus for you. I lift you up in my prayers. How do we know that Paul loved them? Because they were not only on his mouth, but they were on his heart and his mind. And when he went to the Lord, they were in his request to the Lord. How do we know that he loved them? The next thing he says, he says, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. And it's not just like I mentioned earlier. It's not just, John, just chilling. Not just hanging out. Not just getting to know you. He says, I want to be with you so that I can lift you up. Their soul, their spirit, their well-being was on the forefront of Paul's mind. Not just what their week was like. He said, I want to be with you so I can lift you up. And listen, Paul says, I love you and I hope you love me in the same way because I need you because I need you to lift me up also. How do we know that Paul was led by love? Because he said, look, we have a goal that we need to reach together. And that is to present the gospel to the rest of the world. Paul was motivated by love because he knew that his mission, once he received the love of God, his mission was not done. His mission was to lift his brothers and sisters up in Christ, to encourage them and be encouraged by them, but also to gather in the rest of the family. To gather in the rest of the family. Paul was motivated by love. Something I need us to understand before we move on is that these characteristics that I've mentioned over the last few weeks and that I'm finishing up today... (coughs) they cannot be fabricated. 
very easily. They can be faked, but they cannot be fabricated. And it's important to know moving forward because you can fake a spirit of gratitude. You can put a little cheesy smile on your face and say, oh, thank you so much. You can, you can fake a spirit of gratitude. Oh, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Now, if you say those things, don't just say, you know, I'm never going to say thank you now again or I'm blessed. Don't be that way. You know what I mean? You know the type of people. You can fake a spirit of gratitude. You can fake faith for a moment. You can fake determination. I have seen some of the most determined looking people do less in this world than you can imagine. People who get the grunt on their, they get the grunt, they get that look on their face, and they look so determined, and they're, and they're doing nothing. Look, look on a field where, you are, a sports field, where you have to work hard, where you have to practice hard. They're pumping their arms, and they're determined on their face, and yet they're moving like they're running in quicksand. A look of determination does not breed determination. We can fake gratitude. We can fake faith. We can fake determination. Honestly, we can fake thoughtfulness in prayer and action. But you can't fake it for long. And one of the hardest characteristics of all of these things to fake is love. You can say you love the church, that you love other believers. You can say that Christians mean something to you, but it won't be hard to find out who is lying. Love is the reason Paul could mean it when he said he was thankful for his brothers and sisters. Love is what kindled his longing to see those Roman Christians. It's what kept them in his prayers. Love is what kept him moving in the faith toward his brothers and sisters in Christ. You can talk love and you can fake different types of love, but friends, you need to understand there is no endurance in faking Christian love. There is too much riding on Christian love. There is too much that God requires we do and we be with those that we say we love in order to fake it. To grasp biblical agape love for those in the faith is a massive step to being able to keep the first and the second commands. But friends, it will be difficult for you. We are the grandchildren of an error where the self-love of the sexual revolution is fully realized. We are in a time where self-love is just as prevalent as love for others, and with a massive amount of people, self-love is more important. You have heard it before, and maybe you've said it yourself, I need me time. I just need some time to decompress. I need to take care of myself. I need to, I need to nurture myself. Or you do you. Or, or if you've watched Parks and Rec, just treat yourself. There, are, there, are, there, are more, there is more self-love promotion and self-care than we've seen maybe ever. And while I think taking care of ourselves and nurturing ourselves and not always doing for others and never caring more for ourselves is important, I also think that the vast majority of us in here and the vast majority of the people in our country have little struggle with self-care and actually struggle more with caring for others. To the point where I would say, truly, instead of telling ourselves to love ourselves, we are now having to tell ourselves... To love others. 
We have more free time and we have more me time than any other society and probably any other time in this country. Church, we must find a way to recapture our love for God and the people of God. The spirit of love when, presence is, when present is a sweet aroma to the church. It's a sweet aroma to the soul. But when it's missing, it shows up in very harmful ways. How does it show up? When, it, when true love is missing, when it's only fabricated, it shows up like this. We have plenty of time for our friends. But we lack time or have little time for others who we're not close with. When the spirit of love is lacking, we have plenty of patience for people we call our friends and little patience for people who we haven't developed that relationship with. Showing grace only to those that we're close with and little grace to others. Disconnecting from our church for different reasons and then blaming it on the church. If you are disconnected from the people of God, it's likely your fault and not the fault of those who are reaching out to you. Always needing to be pursued by others and never doing the pursuing. This is how a lack of love or a fabricated love shows up in the church. Always needing to be pursued by others and never never doing, doing the pursuing. Now listen, I understand how good it feels for someone else to pursue you. And someone else to like reach out and ask you how you're doing and things like that. But friends, you know who, you know the people that get reached out to the most? Do you know the people? I have, I have the ability to observe this group of people and other churches over time and other bodies of believers. Do you know the people who get reached out to the most? The people who do the most reaching. Do you understand that love is a give and take thing? And if you're always complaining, now this is not necessarily something that's prevalent in our church, but it's prevalent in people's minds at times, and it's prevalent in the body of Christ, so I'm going to say it. If you're always complaining about the fact that no one reaches out to you, always complaining about the fact that you feel disconnected, it's probably because you're always waiting for somebody to do something and never doing. If you want to feel connected to the body of Christ, you be connected to the body of Christ. Love others. Show compassion and concern and care. Let people know that you're praying for them. Let people know that it's not just an, ob- uh, it's not just an obligation to see them on Sunday night and Wednesday night, but it's a joy and a longing of yours. Let them know that you are mutually encouraged by them and be an encouragement to them. Do you know why people like that are pursued? Because they are setting an example for others to follow. And teaching others who don't naturally pursue others to follow that example. Church, if you want want to be a part of a body of believers that has what Paul had for the church of Rome, set that example for the believers. So that they, amen, see, I got an amen right there. Set that example for the believers. Set that example for the believers so that other believers who don't have the natural propensity to do that will do that with and for 
you. The people who get pursued in the church are the people who also do the pursuing. But the self-care, the self-love generation would rather cross their arms and pout instead of taking action. Paul didn't say in his letter, I've longed so much to see you and have yet to come to you for different reasons and not one single one of you came to me. I was over here available. You could have come to me. No, he said, I I long to see you and I want to be mutually encouraging to you. And there were no stipulations on that. It wasn't if you do the same to me. Christian love is different, folks. It can't be fabricated. It cannot be fabricated. Because there's too much at stake for the body of Christ. There's too much that's required from God in order to show love for each other. So what do we do? What do we do? I think we pray that God would bring back that love and feeling. Because it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think that we pray, I'm, and I'm being serious in a joking way, that whole, that whole thing. But I think we pray that God would bring back that loving feeling to us. That he would instill in us a heart for others. Not that God would bring people our way that would, not, I mean, I think that's a part of our prayer life. That God would bring people our way that would encourage us. But more importantly, that we would be an encouragement to others. That others would benefit from our love. And I can promise you, friends, when you start serving and when other people are benefiting from your love, you are going to benefit. There's a mutual, there's a mutual bond. There's a mutual love. You will benefit from their love. Pray that God would bring back that loving feeling. Earnestly pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to prove that you love, if you want to prove that you love, your brothers and sisters in this room and your brothers and sisters in the world should be on your heart and mind enough that you pray for them. And in the end, they should know that you're doing it. <clears throat> Earnestly pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ and let them know. Listen, here's another thing. Intentionally make time for your siblings in Christ. Intentionally make time for your siblings in Christ. Listen, we live in a time that to- we live in an age where time is valuable, but we all think we're busier than the next person. Every single person here thinks they're busier than the next person. You don't understand what it's like to have three kids. You don't understand what it's like to have four kids. You don't understand what it's like to have six kids. You don't understand what it's like to have twins. You don't understand what it's like to have nine kids. We all believe that we have, we are more busy than the next person. You don't understand what it's like to have this type of job or my type of boss. We all believe that we're busier than the next person. So to the point where we're all in, in some sense in a perpetual pity party. That prevents us from loving God's people. You want to show love to the people of God? Intentionally make time for the people of God. Go out of your way. And not just because it's required of you. And not just because it's asked of you. Because in that time, if I spend time with you and you spend time with me, we know at some point there's going to be some mutual blessing from being in each other's presence. And that's a big aspect of our Christian fellowship that we need to make sure happens. Every time you hang out with a friend from church, it doesn't need to be a Bible study. 
But every time you hang out with a friend from church, you need to live uplifted in the gospel. Not having torn other people down. Not having brought each other down. But uplifted in the gospel. A lot of the times I feel like we don't have the motivation to spend time with each other because we're not uplifting each other in the way that we should. And that's my fault. That's my fault. And I'm sorry for that. I take the blame for that because I pick so much. I joke so much. And what has happened is a theme has developed amongst a lot of people where we pick and we joke and we don't draw a line. And so there is a lack of encouragement at times because we don't draw a line between picking all the time and encouraging. Intentionally seek time to be an encouragement to your siblings in Christ, to be there for them, to mutually be beneficial. Here's another, and, and you have to hear this. Go out of your way to show love and affection to outliers in the faith. Go out of your way to show love and affection to people who don't look like you or don't act like you. Listen, if you need to be reminded of that rule from elementary school, go and sit, some, go and sit with somebody at the lunch table who doesn't have a friend sitting with them. Okay, that was one of the first things if you had good parents that your parents taught you. Go and sit with someone who needs a friend. Go and be a friend to someone who needs a friend. But I, and, and I thought elementary school was over, and I thought high school was over, but what I'm finding in the church is we still make presumptions about people based on looks, based on behavior, and based on attitudes and actions that don't look like ours. It is unloving to prejudge someone without giving them a chance to prove themselves before you. And it's unloving to assume that you are the final judge, you are the final decision maker of what someone should look and be and act like. Go out of your way to show love and affection to the outliers in the faith. Seek out those sitting beside by themselves at the lunch table. And do it because the gospel will be sent and brought forth through the love that you show and the action that you give. A spirit of serving in the spirit of the gospel, excuse me, is a spirit of love. Friends, church, it has to motivate us. It has to push us through. And one of the things that I have to be reminded of, it has to come before trying to be funny. It has to come before trying to be laughed at or with. Because it's not always funny to be funny when it discourages people and brings people down and makes them feel separated or unloved. And if I've made you feel that way, I'm sorry. And I do, believe it or not, I do work to not be such a a jokester. I do work to not be so funny all the time, you know. It's so difficult. Um as all of you laugh. <laughs> the next thing that I want to talk about, and we're going to spend the rest of the time on this, and just I want to touch on the last one really quickly. A spirit of inclusivity. A spirit of inclusivity. Now, I know that you see a spirit of inclusivity, and you might think that I've gone full liberal on you. But I, but I really refuse to let these terms that are meant for good be hijacked. And, and Paul here is determined not only to show love for those to the faith, but to preach the gospel to the world. 
The Gospel is inclusive. It brings those who are once far off into the fold and those who are once strangers, it makes friends. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul, in the next set of verses, really lays out his heart, (coughs) excuse me, really lays out what is on his heart and the heart of the gospel. Paul loves Christian people, but he sees it as his mission and their mission mutually that those in the faith preach the gospel to the world. He tells the church that he wants to reap a harvest, that he is under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians and to those who are in Rome. In verse 17, he says, he says to the Jews, Paul is doing something here that is massively important. He is laying out the scope and the effectiveness and the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is laying out the targets that he wants to pursue with the gospel. And who do we find in the audience? Spoiler alert, everyone who ever existed on earth. Paul said, I have a gospel obligation to the Greek and to the barbarian, to the wise and to the foolish, and to everyone at Rome. Paul is describing the type of people that are within the reach of the gospel, and I would like to lay those out for you today. Here are the type of people that are within the reach of the gospel. The gospel is for the educated and accepted and for the undereducated and the outlier. The Greeks would have been one of the most educated people uh, groups because of their developed language and everything that came from that. They had more access to the arts and recorded writings <coughs> and other things that would have educated a large group in general. They would have been more studied and widely accepted. The barbarian is literally those that were around the learned Greeks and didn't speak the language. They were called barbarians because their language sounded like babbling to them. It was like bar, bar, bar. You know, it sounded like... A babble. So they got the name barbarian from the way they talked. They would have been the outliers. Those who could have not easily sold in the market or could not easily have traded. They would not have easily fit within the context of the Greco-Roman culture. In some ways, they were an outcast. So Paul says the spirit of the gospel includes those who are learned, those who are included, and those who are less learned and excluded. It includes the popular, and it includes those who are a little weird. And some of you in here are saying amen to that last one. The gospel is for the included and the learned and the outliers and the less knowledgeable. The gospel is for the strict and religious practice and those who are a little more loose. In verse 16, Paul mentions the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews come from a very strict religious system that accomplished God's will by doing formalism, you know, even legalism to to that point. And the Greeks come from a less strict polytheistic society where the gods lorded their will over the people. And the gospel is for both of these people. The gospel is for those who come from legalistic backgrounds, and the gospel is those who come from a more wild and diverse spiritual background. And then Paul mentions another group of people that really sums up the point. He says, and the rest of you who are at Rome. 
With that, Paul has covered all his bases. When I was a, when I was a, young, uh, a young child, I would pray every night, and my prayer would be, you know, a very simple prayer. It would be, now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, blah, blah, blah. I didn't say the one you sang. I think my mom was scared of me thinking about death. You know, if you sang the one like, what's the one where it talks about dying? If I die before I wake, I pray. My mom didn't let me pray that one because she didn't want me to think about dying in the middle of the night. So I prayed something, uh, you know, whatever. I prayed, I prayed a different one. Anyway, and I would, so I would start, I would pray for people that I knew that weren't Christians. Like, I, I, I've been praying for non-Christians. I'm not trying to get you to toot, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I've been praying for non-Christians for a long time. And in the end of that prayer, I would say, and all the people who are not saved, that they would be saved. Almost every night, I would say, and all the people who are not saved, that they'd be saved. And Paul is telling us this same message that I learned as a young child, that the gospel is for the Greeks, it's for the barbarians, it's for the learned and the unlearned, it's for all of the Romans, meaning all the people who are not saved, that they would be saved. Paul's laying out a theme here that is echoed in his other letters, it's echoed in the Gospels, and it's echoed with the other writers of the New Testament, that there is no distinction of persons as it pertains to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel, the spirit of the Gospel is inclusive to, because everyone is needy. And everyone needs the only answer that they can have, and that is Jesus Peter said in Acts 10, 34-35, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him. Jesus, in the, in the Acts version of the Great Commission, says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus was giving as a great commission the rest of the world as the gospel harvesting field. Regardless of race, regardless of religious background, regardless of whether the person has is an enmity, visible enmity with the gospel, or whether they're at silent enmity with the gospel. The gospel is for them. And we must grasp that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a white thing or a black thing, but a global thing. It, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the liberal professor at the university. It's for the snowflake. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for the poor and down. It's for the homeless and the helpless. The gospel is for the strictly religious Muslim or Jew. The gospel is for the agnostic and the atheist. The atheist. Do you understand the importance of gospel inclusivity? Do you understand the importance of gospel proclamation to the world? The spirit of love is seen fully when those loved by God see the rest of the world as needy for that love and we do all that we can to pursue them and not reject them. Do we live in a spirit of this type of gospel inclusivity? Would it be said of you that anyone can feel comfortable <coughs> around you as a human being? That people feel the love of Jesus when they are around you? Now I want to point out two things, and it's very, very important that you understand this when we talk about inclusivity. The gospel for everyone does not mean that the gospel should look like everyone. The gospel for everyone, that does not mean that the gospel should look like everyone. Inclusivity does not mean making the gospel look like the rest of the world. Inclusivity means that the gospel stands out. 
and that the thrust that brings people in is love and not necessarily that the gospel looks like them. Friends, it is love that drew you to Jesus. An undying, unending, a while we were yet sinners type love. And it is love from us and from Jesus Christ that will draw all of those people that I mentioned a minute ago to Christ himself. It has never been about making the gospel look like the rest of the world. But making the love of God, not making, elevating the love of God and displaying the love of God as fantastic and as wonderful and as freeing and as amazing as it is so that people can repent and people can trust in God. The gospel is for everyone, but it doesn't mean that the gospel should look like everyone. You need to hear this too. And you might think I'm on a soapbox when I'm saying this, but I'm the pastor here and I'm preaching today so I can say this. And it's still within the context of the sermon. The gospel is anti-social justice in the way that we know it today and it is anti-racism because both elevate one people group over the other. It's anti-social justice as we know it today and it's anti-racism because both elevate one people over the other. Social justice says treat the poor as rich and treat the rich as poor where the gospel of Jesus Christ says treat both equally. Treat both as Jesus would have treated them. Racism says elevate your skin tone over another. The feeling of superiority just because you were born white or you were born another color and literally had nothing to do with that. Do you know what racism and social justice have in common? The social justice that we know Today, when I say, when you hear me talk about social justice, I'm going to use it as a negative term because justice is just justice. Doing what's right is just right. You don't need to put social in front of it. You just do what's right. So social justice to me has a completely negative connotation. Do you know what racism and social justice have in common? There is no redemption in either of them. There is no redemption. No change. No way to get out of there. the cast that these people who are in charge of these terms have placed you in. <clears throat> there is no redemption. A social justice warrior says, if you were born with privilege, the only way to come out of that is to reject that privilege. But what you will find is, it is never enough. The best way that you can reject your privilege, it wouldn't be said out loud, but it's thought about, is if you, have, if you were born into privilege, it would be to kill yourself. That would be the best way to reject your privilege from a social justice warrior perspective. It'll never be enough. In racism, you can't reject your skin tone, so there is no hope of redemption in that person's eyes. Social justice says (coughs) someone that looks like you did something one time a long time ago, and you must pay. You need to hear me when I say this. Reparations at the time of the crime is a godly thing. Reparations at the time of the crime is a godly thing, or shortly thereafter. But reparations now for something that was done hundreds of years ago, or even 800 years ago, or even 50 years ago, is foolishness, and it's a front to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Social justice says you did something a long time ago and we found out about it. There is no way you're getting forgiven. We're going to do everything that we can to ruin you. And I need, to, I, I need you to hear this. I had this happen in my life in a, in a different scale. I might have told you this story before, but there was a guy that was a part of our church that I was a part of for a very long time. And he knew me when I was 12, 13, 14. He knew me when I was 16 and when I was playing softball for the men's church league softball team. He knew me when I got kicked out of a a softball game, a church league softball game. And now he knew me as one of the pastors of his church. And the dude never let me live it down. Never let me live it down. One day, it culminated by him drawing me out of the, pulling me out of the church and getting into a verbal altercation with me and telling me that he's the type of person that would kick somebody's and then go sit back in the pew and be fine with it. And something occurred to me that day that never occurred to me before, and it was this. This guy came from a rough background. And he was separated from that background. He didn't have to live in his past. And so I asked him, someone forgave you for what you did. When do I get forgiven? When do I get forgiven? And here's the deal, friends. With social media, with the internet, your past will be dug up one day. It can be easily accessed. And if you live in a manner of deep resentment, if you live in a manner of unforgiveness, if you have a social justice mentality, <clears throat> that, what goes with, along with that mentality is the lack to ever allow someone else to be redeemed. The reason social justice is incongruent with the gospel, the reason racism is incongruent with the gospel is because God is a God of redemption. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God is a God of redemption. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have to face the consequences of our sin. But the thing that is so anti-gospel about these groups of people is that they make you live in perpetual shame for things that God said is as far as the east is from the west. It is unloving. It is ungodly, and it offers no hope in the world. The goal of social justice is not to elevate the poor out of poverty or the marginalized into the margin, but to bring them up while also tearing the opposite of them down. This is not the spirit of the gospel. The gospel is anti-racism because racism assumes dominance and superiority based on skin color. And the Bible says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Now, racism will always exist in a fallen world, but, I, but it, cannot, it cannot thrive in the heart of those people who say they belong to Jesus Christ. The spirit of the gospel is inclusive. Every nation will be represented in eternity. And you need to hear this, friends. You need to hear this. I'm all for border protection and for keeping our country safe. But I hope that the main thrust of our life isn't trying so hard to keep the same people out of the border on earth when those same people will share a table with us in heaven. You can be about border protection. You can be about securing our country. And also love the immigrant. 
Even the illegal immigrant. You can be, you can stand for your political, you can take your political stance. You can take your moral stance and still love people who you will share a table with in heaven. Good thing there aren't any eye rolls in heaven, probably. <coughs> the gospel is the gospel, and it must look like the gospel. But you also should know that the gospel is for the Jew and the Greek and the barbarian and anyone else who trusts in Jesus and follows him. There's one more thing, and I'm going to spend two minutes on it, I promise you. A resolved spirit. A resolved spirit. Serving in the spirit of the gospel serves with a resolved spirit. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to talk about this next week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But I want you to take this in preparation for next week. I want you to be thinking about this. Are you low-key ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you low-key? Not like, not like, embarrassed to be around church friends or embarrassed to say you're a Christian but embarrassed to really take this gumption and this thrust that Paul had to really put yourself out there when you know that the other person is an atheist or the other person is agnostic or someone who's really learned about Christianity but still rejects Christianity Are you low-key ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We'll talk about this over the next week, so I don't want to spoil too much. But friends, I want to tell you, Paul, the first part of verse 16 is giving you the motivation for the first part of Romans, the rest of Romans, for Ephesians, for First and Second Timothy, and for the rest of the gospel. And it's this, Paul was not ashamed of Jesus he was not ashamed that he went from being a Pharisee of a Pharisee, a Jew of the Jew, to serving the God and creator of the universe. He was not ashamed. And I'm convinced. I'm convinced of this because I know it's true in my own life. When there's any doubt or when there's any shame, <coughs> it comes from a spirit or an attitude that is not allowing themselves to be fully surrendered to be fully controlled by Jesus Christ himself. It comes from an attitude that where people will give part of themselves, will give a good portion of themselves, or will give moments of themselves. Because I'm convinced of this. If we are, if, if we are really changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are really a new creation, it will Spring forth from us in abundance. Here are some examples. Have you ever heard of many cancer survivors not being proponents of cancer research? How many cancer survivors do you know that do 5Ks now? Or that, do, uh, that, that on their birthday on Facebook they say, give to so-and-so. How many outlaw, how many friends of cancer survivors you ever know of somebody to be in a car accident and not be like really safe, you know, and not do the thing that they did again? I mean, there are people that are dumb, but you know, mostly, mostly they don't do the same thing that they did the first time. You know why? And I've said this before to you, but when you get hit by a bus, 
Your life is changed by that impact, by that force. When something drastic and dramatic happens in your life, your life is changed by that. And the only sane response is to be one of the biggest proponents, to be one of the biggest fighters for that change in others. To, to fight to protect people from the same things you fought against. To fight to bring people into this knowledge and this understanding that you now have. I'm convinced that some of us, even me at times, we have not surrendered ourselves completely because if we did, what would come forth from us is the mouth, the wording, the life, the spirit, the mutual um, uplifting of a new creation in Christ. And it just doesn't enough. It just doesn't come from us enough. So let's all be motivated. Let's not be guilted by that. Let's be motivated by that. That the spirit of the gospel would come forth from us more and more every day as we surrender more and more of our lives, as we become more and more of an advocate for that thing we're so passionate about. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for being holy. Lord, it's through your holiness that we can be holy. You're not a God who just died having lived a normal life, having lived a sinful life. You lived a perfect life. And when you died... When you rose again, you gave us the, the ability to be holy as you were holy. To walk in truth, to walk in holiness, to walk in faith, to walk in love, to walk in gratitude. You gave us the ability to walk in the spirit of the gospel. Lord, would you help us to surrender to you day by day, piece by piece of our lives. So that we can be more like you so that we can overflow you in our lives, so that those around us are mutually benefited by being around us, and that we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And I am not ashamed of that gospel. Lord, we pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.